Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Pneumococcal vaccines have been instrumental in decreasing invasive pneumococcal disease since their introduction last century. In 2021, there were a number of regulatory changes, and updated ACIP recommendations were recently published in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, also known as MMWR. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director with the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence and your program host. Today, I'm joined by my Vizient colleague, Dr. John Schoen, Senior Clinical Manager of Drug Information, who will give us his perspective on the role of these new vaccines in the ACIP recommendations. Welcome, John. Thanks, Gretchen. I appreciate you having me on. Tell me a little bit about your background before coming to Vizient. Sure. My background's in drug information. I did my PGY2 at University of Utah. And following residency, I worked as a drug policy and formulary management pharmacist at a large academic medical center for a little over six years. After that, I transitioned to my current role at Vizient, where I work on the evidence-based medicine team within the Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I more recently transitioned into being the infectious disease lead within that group. Any clinical deliverable or project related to infectious disease, I'll be the, the point person leading those projects. I have also recently transitioned on to the antimicrobial stewardship committee within the member networks. One of the main reasons that I'm here today talking about the pneumococcal vaccines is that I recently completed a comprehensive side-by-side -side for the pneumococcal vaccines, and that is available on the Vizient website on the Pharmacy Solutions page for our members, and an abbreviated version will also be available for the public in the show notes. Well, we're really happy to have your expertise. Walk us through the history of pneumococcal disease. Pneumococcal disease is caused by streptococcus pneumoniae, and it can be categorized as either invasive or non-invasive disease. Invasive disease is typically your more serious infections involving infection of normally sterile sites, includes things like meningitis, pneumonia with bacteremia, bacteremia without a focus of infection, osteomyelitis, and septic arthritis. You have your non-invasive disease as well, includes things like otitis media, sinusitis, pneumonia without bacteremia. And overall, pneumococcal pneumonia is the most common presentation of pneumococcal disease that we see in adults and children, and also a common source of otitis media as well. For pneumococcal pneumonia, over 150,000 hospitalizations happen each year in the U.S. for that particular infection. And for invasive disease, from 2019 data, there were 30,000 cases and a approximately 3,000 deaths in the U.S. And while those numbers aren't insignificant by any means, the rates of invasive disease have gone down significantly since the development of pneumococcal vaccines. They first started looking at developing these vaccines starting in the early 1900s, and those efforts were somewhat put on hold or declined a little bit when penicillin was introduced in 1928 and became the workhorse for treating pneumococcal infections. But if you back up even further, before development of vaccines and antibiotics, the use of serum therapy for pneumococcal infections was actually considered the standard of care. Fast forward to 1977, when we actually saw the first pneumococcal vaccine approved in the U.S. This was a 14-valent pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine, also abbreviated as PPSV. And this vaccine basically means that there were 14 different serotypes for pneumococcal infection that were covered within this vaccine. This was later replaced in 1983 by PPSV-23, which has been the primary vaccine available in the U.S. all the way up until 2000. That was just a 23-valent version. It's still that PPSV polysaccharide-type vaccine. And in 2000, the first pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, or PCV vaccine, was approved in the U.S., and that was Prevnar, and it's a 7-valent vaccine. 
10 years later, it ended up getting replaced by Prevnar 13 or PCV 13, basically just added six additional serotypes that it covers compared to its previous version of the seven valent vaccine. So lots of activity in this space and a rather large disease state burden. Tell me more about the significance of these vaccines. One important thing to distinguish is the different types of the vaccine. You have your PCVs, the pneumococcal conjugate vaccines, and those were the ones that came out later starting in 2000. You also have your PPSV vaccines, which were the first versions of these vaccines. These two different vaccine types induce different types of immune responses. PPSV is responsible for producing a T-cell independent response and does not produce memory B cells. Whereas the conjugate vaccine, it's still a polysaccharide, but it's conjugated to a carrier protein. Because of that conjugation with the vaccine, the immune response that it produces is different than the PPSV. The response is T-cell dependent, and it actually does result in the production of memory B cells. Those differences are significant for a couple reasons. One is that the PCV vaccines tend to provide a more sustained and robust immune response than the PPSVs. And the other thing is that when PCV vaccines were introduced, that allowed for the incorporation of pneumococcal vaccines into the routine childhood immunization series. Previously to that, PPSVs were not used in children less than two because they do not mount an adequate immune response to that vaccine type. Whereas with the PCV vaccines, children are actually able to mount a response which allowed them to be incorporated into childhood immunizations. Both of these vaccines, despite their differences, have had a pretty big impact on the reduction of invasive pneumococcal disease. When you look specifically at PPSV23, that's about 60 to 70% effective in reducing rates of invasive pneumococcal disease for the serotypes that are covered for that vaccine. And then when Prevnar came out, it was a big deal having the pneumococcal type vaccine come out and being introduced in the childhood immunization series because the rates of invasive disease for the seven serotypes covered in that original vaccine declined by over 99% after first introduced. In 2010, when PCV13 came out, the rates of invasive pneumococcal disease for these 13 serotypes declined by about 90% in children. And the thing that's also interesting to note is that even though older adults were not receiving these vaccines initially when they were approved, they also had an indirect benefit from vaccination in the pediatric population. Adults over the age of 65, even though they weren't necessarily the ones receiving the PCV13 vaccine, saw a 60% reduction in that invasive disease since the introduction of the pneumococcal conjugate vaccines. As far as data for reducing invasive disease in adults goes, once PCV13 was incorporated, there was a large landmark study. It was called the CAPITA trial. They looked at 85,000 patients over the age of 65 and found that the PCV13 vaccine had approximately a 75% relative vaccine efficacy for the prevention of invasive disease. It also showed a benefit in non-bacteremic pneumonia or a non-invasive infection of about 45% for a relative vaccine efficacy for that particular infection as well. So clearly, both of these vaccines have definitely had an important impact on pneumococcal disease overall. What's new in this arena now? There's been two new pneumococcal vaccines that were approved last year. The first one approved was in June of 2021. The brand name for that is Prevnar 20, and it is a pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, abbreviated as PCV20. The second vaccine was approved just a month later in July of 2021. Brand name for that one is Vaxnuvance, and it is also a pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. Abbreviation for that is PCV15. 
Both of the vaccines share the same 13 serotypes that are covered in PCV13. So all of the available pneumococcal conjugate vaccines on the market now cover the same 13 serotypes. But PCV15 also covers two additional serotypes compared with PCV13. And then PCV20 covers seven additional serotypes compared with PCV13. Both vaccines might be changing in the near future, but currently are only approved for use in patients 18 years of age and older. And there's a couple differences in their indications. I don't really know how consequential those differences really are in terms of choosing the products. Certainly, if you look at ACIP recommendations, they don't have a preference for either option at this time. But there is a difference in the FDA-approved indications for PCV15. It's specifically approved for the prevention of invasive disease, where PCV20 also has that indication in addition to an indication for the prevention specifically of pneumonia in adults 18 years of age and older. The thing to note about that particular indication is that that approval is really only specific to the 13 shared serotypes with PCV13. And PCV20, just like PCV13, is a Pfizer vaccine, which is the vaccine from that CAPITA trial that I mentioned earlier. My guess is that because they had that data for those shared 13 serotypes, they were able to get that indication specifically for pneumonia as well. And then for the seven unique serotypes, they also were granted that indication, but specifically under an accelerated approval pathway. So the continued approval for those serotypes for pneumonia will be contingent upon the results of trials looking at clinical outcomes down the road. It's definitely exciting to have these new options available. How does the expanded serotype coverage change things? Unfortunately, we don't have any studies looking at clinical outcomes with these new vaccines yet. The studies that we do have are focused specifically on immunogenicity. One of the things that we can look at is the rates for invasive pneumococcal disease for the additional serotypes that are covered in these new vaccines to get an idea of the disease burden for the serotypes that these vaccines are adding in their coverage. All of the pneumococcal conjugate vaccines cover the same 13 serotypes. So really the thing to focus on is the coverage beyond those 13 serotypes. For PCV15, there's two new serotypes, which are 22F and 33F. And PCV20 has the seven additional serotypes, which includes 22F and 33F as well, in addition to five other serotypes not covered by PCV15. Those two specific serotypes, 22F and 33F, are significant for a few reasons. One of the reasons is that more recently, rates of invasive pneumococcal disease have been increasing due to these serotypes in more recent years. The other reason is that both of these serotypes have been associated with multidrug resistant infections. When you look at the rate of invasive pneumococcal disease in adults for these serotypes, they account for approximately 12 to 15% of invasive disease, depending on age and comorbidities. For the additional five serotypes that PCV20 covers over PCV15, those five serotypes types account for approximately 14 to 20% of invasive disease in adults. And finally, it's important to also recognize that PPSV23, while it still does cover almost all of the same serotypes that are covered in the conjugate vaccines, with the exception of serotype 6A, PPSV23 does cover four serotypes that are not covered by any of the conjugate vaccines. And those four serotypes account for 8 to 14% of invasive disease in adults. So there's 100 immunologically distinct serotypes overall, but there's a smaller subset that are responsible for disease. And that's where the focus of vaccine development has really been. But despite the vaccines that cover the various serotypes, the incidence of non-vaccine serotype IPD or invasive pneumococcal disease still occurs in about 20 to 37% of the cases. 
still a pretty big disease burden for serotypes that are unfortunately not covered by the current vaccine options at this time. You had mentioned that there are no outcome studies with these newer vaccines, but what are some of the efficacy data points? The studies for both PCV15 and PCV20 are focused on immunogenicity outcomes. The primary immunogenicity outcome of interest is called the opsonophagocytic activity, or the OPA titer, and it is a strong in vitro correlate of protection. The OPA provides a functional measure of activity of the anti-pneumococcal antibodies, but unfortunately, while it is a strong in vitro correlate of protection, there's no immune correlate of protection that has been established for clinical outcomes. So Center for Biologics Evaluation Research has decided that demonstration of non-inferiority for that OPA titer is what they are looking at to deem sufficient for approval of these new vaccines. And that is what the current body of evidence we have is focused on for both PCV15 and PCV20. Both of these vaccines each have one main trial where it evaluated the vaccines against PCV13 to look at non-inferiority for that OPA titer. They all each have a number of other studies as well, but all the other immunogenicity studies outside of the two key studies that I'll talk about are purely descriptive in nature. The main study for PCV15 is the New Age study that was published in 2021, which evaluated PCV15 versus PCV13 in healthy adults that are 50 years of age and older. What that study demonstrated is that PCV15 was non-inferior for all 13 shared serotypes 30 days after vaccination on that OPA titer. As you might expect, when they looked at the two unique serotypes, 22F and 33F, both of those serotypes met the criteria for superiority for PCV15 versus PCV13. Something that was interesting is that serotype 3 also met the criteria for superiority with PCV15 over PCV13. And that's notable because serotype 3 is one of the most common serotypes that's covered by PCV13 that's still associated with breakthrough infections for invasive pneumococcal disease. Keep in mind that this is just one study and this data is focused on immunogenicity outcomes. So it's unsure what the clinical significance of that really is and whether or not that difference would really translate to a difference, if any, in clinical outcomes. For PCV20, there's also one main study that evaluated non-inferiority. It was published by Essenka et al. in 2020. And there were three different age cohorts in this study, but the primary cohort that they looked at for their main outcome was a cohort looking at patients that were 60 years of age and older. Again, they compared PCV20 versus PCV13. But in this study, PCV20 was followed by placebo at one month, and PCV13 was followed by PPSV23 at one month. And in this study, it was also demonstrated that PCV20 was non-inferior to PCV13 for all of the shared 13 serotypes for that OPA titer. And then when they looked at the shared serotypes between those seven additional serotypes in PCV20 compared with the serotypes covered by PPSV23, they found that six out of the seven serotypes met criteria for non-inferiority. There was actually one serotype, which was serotype 8, that did not meet the criteria for non-inferiority. It just barely missed the lower bound of the conference interval and the non-inferiority margin. But when you looked at the mean fold increase in the titers for that, it would have met criteria that's generally considered to be consistent or indicative of an adequate immune response. But nevertheless, it did not meet the criteria for non-inferiority for that particular study. After you reviewed the trials, do you have any safety concerns? 
Generally, both PCV15 and PCV20 were well-tolerated in the clinical studies. Most common adverse reactions that were seen are pretty typical for a lot of vaccines, including injection site reactions, myalgia, fatigue. One thing to note specifically with PCV15 is that the injection site reactions did occur more frequently compared with PCV13 in several of the studies. Reason for that isn't really unknown. However, it's unlikely for it to be clinically significant given that most of the reactions were typically mild and relatively short in duration. Overall, not a lot of safety concerns jump out for these particular vaccines based on the studies that have been reviewed looking at immunogenicity data. And there were no serious adverse events that were attributed to either vaccine in any of the clinical studies so far. With all that background, what are the current ACIP recommendations? Currently, the ACIP recommendations are specific to adults for both PCV15 and PCV20. And one of the goals of ACIP when they provided their recommendations for these vaccines was to simplify the recommendations for pneumococcal vaccines. I think just in general, with the various changes in recommendations over the years, there's been a source of confusion sometimes for recommendations for PCV13 and PPSV23. What they really did with these new recommendations is to standardize the same recommendation across the board if you had an indication for pneumococcal vaccines. When you look at the recommendations in isolation for these new vaccines, they certainly are simplified. But unfortunately, right now with the need to still know the recommendations for the previous vaccines, overall, I think the picture for pneumococcal vaccine recommendations is probably more complicated now than it ever has been, unfortunately. As far as the recommendations for the new vaccines go, in October of 2021, ACIP issued their recommendations, and they said that they would recommend either a single dose of PCV20 by itself or PCV15 followed by PPSV23 without a preference for either option in two different groups. One is adults over the age of 65, and the other one is adults between the age of 18 and 64 who have certain underlying medical conditions such as heart disease, lung disease diabetes, liver disease, etc. In both cases, these recommendations are specific to patients who have not previously received pneumococcal vaccines or in whom the vaccine status is unknown. And for the pneumococcal vaccines, it's specifically pneumococcal conjugate vaccines. They had to be PCV vaccine naive. These recommendations were later published in January this year in the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report, where ACIP was able to provide some additional clarification on the recommendations that I just went through. One of the recommendations that was clarified is the interval between PPSV23 and PCV15. Basically, the recommendation is to separate those by at least a year in most patients. However, they did state that an eight-week interval can be considered in certain patients who are immunocompromised, have a cochlear implant, or have a cerebrospinal fluid leak. And the goal within those patient groups is to just minimize the risk of invasive disease in those more vulnerable groups. I definitely agree with you about the complexity that we're seeing here. And as the market has expanded, we're going to be caring for patients who have received different combinations in the past. How should we deal with that? Yeah, and so this is really where it gets complicated with the new recommendations. And ACIP did provide guidance in these situations specifically for patients who receive PPSV23 only. And in those patients, they may receive either one of the new vaccines, PCV15 or PCV20, at least one year following when they receive their PPSV23 to complete their vaccine series. And then they would essentially be done with their pneumococcal vaccines. Where it gets a little more tricky is patients who've received either PCV13 alone or PCV13 with PPSV23. 
For patients who previously received PCV13 alone or in series with PPSV23, the recommendations that ACIP provides are that these patients should complete the previously recommended PPSV23 series. Currently, they do not recommend that these patients be given either one of the new vaccines, but instead they would complete their previously recommended series. And so for this reason, it's necessary for providers to be familiar with both the new recommendations for PCV15 and PCV20, but also to remain familiar with the recommendations for the use of PCV13 and PPSV23 in order to be able to complete those vaccine series in patients who receive PCV13 and or PPSV23 previously. At the January meeting with ACIP, following their recommendations in October of 2021, the January meeting this year, they did note that the work group had a discussion in favor of providing an opportunity to administer the higher valent vaccines, but really given the lack of data, they ended up not providing a recommendation. However, it may be possible that this is something that ACIP addresses in the future, but in the time being, it's necessary to be familiar with both sets of recommendations. And there's some additional considerations as well, given that you still need to be familiar with the old recommendations. One of those considerations is when you look at adults 65 years of age and older. Currently with PCV13 and PPSV23, if adults receive that combination of vaccines prior to age 65, the old recommendations would state that once they hit 65, they would be indicated to receive another dose of PPSV23 as long as it's been at least five years since they received their last dose of PPSV23. With the new vaccines, the recommendations have changed so that if you receive either PCV20 alone or that combo of PCV15 followed by PPSV23, you would no longer be recommended to receive any pneumococcal vaccines after the age of 65. So you basically get your, your pneumococcal vaccine prior to 65 and then you're done. So it really just depends on what you received previously as to whether or not you would need to get another vaccine after you hit 65. Another thing to consider is that for immunocompromised patients, if you receive PCV13 with PPSV23, if you have an immunocompromising condition, those recommendations state that you would need a second dose of PPSV23 five years after you complete that series. But with the new vaccines, there is no recommendation to repeat the dose of PPSV23 in patients who receive the the combination of PCV15 and PPSV23. It's definitely a complicated situation right now with pneumococcal vaccines and trying to go back and forth between the previous recommendations and the current recommendations based on vaccine history with patients. One last thing to consider is that the recommendations for the new vaccines are specific to pneumococcal conjugate vaccine naive patients. One thing that's not addressed in the current ACIP guidance is for patients who receive a pneumococcal conjugate vaccine as part of a childhood immunization series. We're getting to the point now where you could have patients that are over the age of 18 that may have received PCV7 as part of their childhood immunization series because that came out in 2000. So technically, those patients aren't PCV naive. It's unclear, are they candidates for the new vaccines or should they continue with the recommendations for PCV13 and PP? PSV23. Hopefully there'll be some additional guidance provided on that down the line. So again, with all that complexity and multiple if-then scenarios, what are some of the medication safety implications that you're concerned about? 
there's a couple things to consider here. When you look at the medication errors that occur with vaccines, there's a report with ISMP that looked at this and they found that wrong vaccines account for over 20% of vaccine errors. At the time, it was only PPSV23 and PCV13 for the pneumococcal vaccines. Those vaccines made the list of some of the more commonly mixed up vaccines. And now with the addition of these two new vaccines, you have four pneumococcal vaccines to consider. It's definitely important to put some safeguards into place to help avoid administration of the wrong vaccine or mix-ups in clinics. The other thing is if you look at the intervals of the vaccines. So with PCV13 and PPSV23, the general recommended interval was to give PPSV23 at least eight weeks after PCV13. In most cases, there's some exceptions to that, but in general, the recommendation was an eight-week timing. When you look at the interval for PCV15 and PPSV23, the recommended interval is one year. And then there are a few carve-outs that I mentioned with immunocompromised patients and CSF leaks where you can give at a shorter interval. So there's different intervals depending on which conjugate vaccine you would give. So just making sure that you have some sort of documentation in place and education for patients to help them make sure that the vaccines are given at the right intervals. John, this is a lot of information to manage. How can our frontline pharmacy staff best position themselves to support appropriate use of these vaccines? One of the main things is just being familiar with both the new recommendations and remaining familiar with the previous recommendations and really recognizing the risk factors that would qualify patients for these vaccines. It is important for pharmacists and just healthcare providers in general when you are deciding what vaccine to give these patients to really have a good history of the vaccines that patients have received to know if they are PCV vaccine naive or not to be able to best determine which pneumococcal vaccine is appropriate to give these patients. Pharmacists are also uniquely positioned to be able to educate patients on vaccine follow-up and intervals. If you get that new PCV15 vaccine, and that's a one-year interval, whether that's giving patients a reminder card or having something in the EHR that sends patients a message to help them follow up to make sure that that second vaccine is administered. Because if they don't get that PPSV23, then they won't have the full coverage that would be intended with that series. What are you expecting for the future? The immediate thing coming up is that it is very likely PCV15 will receive approval to expand its use sometime in April. That data for the use of PCV15 was presented at the ACIP meeting on February 24th, and the data was pretty similar to what was presented for adults or what has been looked at for adults in that it's specifically looking at immunogenicity data. For pediatrics, the immunogenicity outcome of interest is a little bit different. They're looking at an IgG response rather than that OPA titer, but in general, the studies that were presented and shared at that meeting indicate that the PCV15 vaccine was non-inferior and pretty similar to the immunogenicity outcomes compared with PCV13 in pediatric patients. One thing to note that the discussion at the ACIP meeting really focused around a couple questions, looking at the recommendations for children less than two, as well as children that had certain risk factors between the ages of two and 18. In both of those cases, the recommendation was phrased to state that whether or not PCV15 should be considered as an option for these patients. So the recommendations and the questions that ACIP has put forward are not indicating that there's going to be a preferential recommendation. That is something that we won't officially know until ACIP votes at the June meeting. Right now, it's looking like if PCV15 does get approved, it will be put forward as an option for these patients.
And then PCV20 is also expected to be expanded to pediatrics as well, but this is a little further out as this will not likely occur until sometime in 2023. And the other thing is that there's some other pneumococcal vaccines that are currently in the pipeline, some higher valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccines. There's a PCV23 vaccine that's in phase three trials right now, a PCV24 vaccine in phase two trials. And then there's other possibilities for further development on the horizon with all kinds of new vaccine technology, the mRNA viral and vector vaccines, and so forth. I definitely expect that there's some more change to come with pneumococcal vaccines. Again, John, there's a lot to take in, but thank you so much for joining us today to share your perspective. I'm really glad you could be here with us. Absolutely, Gretchen. It's my pleasure. And listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>